0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of 1 John this morning. Uh, If you're using one of the hardcover Bibles that Elise just mentioned a moment ago, uh, page 1021 is where you can find 1 John uh, if not, it's somewhere near the very end of, uh, of your Bible, those last several pages there. We live in a moment characterized by a lot of instability. I don't know that I have to convince anybody uh, of that, but a lot of instability. Cultural norms feel unstable. Definitions of words, governments, political parties, and platforms, institutions, of various shapes and sizes, Churches, so many things are are seemingly changing at incredibly rapid rates. And in this kind of environment, we feel unstable. Increasing numbers of us, and that's true in this room, but, but as a society at large, increasing numbers suffer from anxiety and depression. All of us experience some form of insecurity and worry and doubt. For Christians, people who claim to know and to to follow Jesus. One of the outworkings of this has been a a deep wrestling with whether or not to remain in the church, or in some cases, whether or not to remain a Christian at all. In the past decade, there's been a a huge increase among the nuns, not the the Catholic order, uh, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S, or adults who are religiously unaffiliated. It's been a huge rise over the last couple of decades in people that don't identify as having any religion as well as growth of movements like the ex-evangelicals, people who once uh, identified as an evangelical Christian and no longer do for various reasons. Or people going through various forms of what we would call deconstruction, or some even going through deconversion, saying, I really don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. The specifics of all that might be unique to our 21st century Western world, but cultural instability... And the effects of cultural instability on Christians and on the church is not unique. In every age, there have been pressures to stop following Jesus or to not become a Christian in the first place. In every age, there there have been pressures to leave the church or to avoid ever joining it in the first place. And this was true in Asia Minor near the end of the first century. Churches that, that had been established there Uh, And in many cases, established by the Apostle Paul as he traveled around around the Mediterranean world 50 or so years prior, planting and establishing churches. Uh, Many of those churches were now seeing people depart from the church and depart from the faith. A few different movements, which would eventually give birth to something called Gnosticism, were on the rise. And it was into this environment that the Apostle John began to write. So by this point, the last couple decades of the first century, he's the oldest and perhaps the only surviving member of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. So John begins writing in those last couple centuries of the first century, and he writes a gospel, an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, He writes the book of Revelation, the last book that we have in our scriptures. And he writes three different letters known as 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. This morning, we're getting to kick off a a brand new sermon series in the book of 1 John. And and though technically this is a letter, you're going to see even this morning as we begin that it doesn't feel a whole lot like other letters in the New Testament. So over the years, people have categorized it more as a treatise or a pamphlet or even a kind of a sermon, a loosely structured sermon uh, rather than a letter. But regardless of its form, John wrote this so that Christians might have assurance and confidence about their faith. He wrote it so that Christians in the first century, by extension, those who read it later might have assurance and confidence about their faith. It's written in other words, in John's words that you may know that you may know. Now in John's day, Christians needed fresh certainty about Jesus Christ and and his work. They needed fresh assurance that what the early church taught, that what Jesus taught to the disciples and the disciples taught to others who kept passing it on, they needed assurance that was true. They needed fresh confidence to counter the instability and the insecurity, both within and without. And so do we, so do we. And so in the weeks ahead, as we explore John's writing, pray that God would use his timely word, his timeless word in really timely ways. Uh, Pray that you and other people would experience that fresh assurance, that fresh confidence. Pray that we would know, that we would know. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in to 1 John. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you through Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds would be open to receive all that leads to life into holiness, we pray that you would lead us into all of the confidence and all of the assurance that is ours because of what you have done, Jesus. And we pray this in your name, because you are the only source possible for it. Amen, amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is First John chapter one. I'm going to read verses one through four. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. There are a handful of purpose statements that we find scattered throughout 1 John. But in this prologue, these these opening words, we see here that he desires his readers to know, verse 1, the word of life. He's writing so that you may know the word of life. And with the rest of our time, we're going to unpack three things about this word of life. We're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about how we know it. And then we're going to talk about why we need it. What it is, how we know it, and why we need it. So first, what it is. If this introduction to 1 John sounds a little familiar, uh, that's because it has parallels to both the book of Genesis and the gospel of, of John. Genesis starts, first book in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so centuries later, picking up on that, the Apostle John starts his gospel, his account of Jesus' life and ministry, talking a lot about the word. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so it's not surprising if we know the background of Genesis and John's gospel, that in his letter, he starts with that which is from the beginning, and he writes a lot about the word of life. But if you look closely, you'll notice an important difference. In most translations of the gospel of John, not the text we're reading today, but the gospel of John, word is capitalized. The W is capitalized. Here in this letter, in most translations, it's not. And that's because here it's actually not as clear what John intends Is he talking about the word, capital W, which is a way of speaking about the second person of the Trinity, God, the son, Jesus Christ, or is he talking about the word, lowercase W? In that case, word would be referring not to a person, but to a message. And specifically, the word of life would be the message which gives life. It's confusing. It's confusing. Maybe you're smarter than I am and you just figured it out immediately when you read it. But it's confusing because on the one hand, John uses these impersonal references. He keeps saying, that which was, and instead of he who was. And it makes us think that, well, word must be the message. It must be not the person, Jesus Christ. But then in verse 2, he says that this life, eternal life, was with the Father. That sounds like very much like a personal reference to, to Jesus. And, and the, his pre-existence, the fact that before he came into the world, he was with God the Father in heaven. People a lot smarter than me have have debated this for centuries. Here's the thing that that I keep coming back to. The Apostle John was a prolific and very capable writer. And way more important even than that, he's he's an apostle empowered by the Holy Spirit to write things down authoritatively for us, for the benefit of the people of God. So what if there's actually a purpose to a lack of complete clarity here? If John wanted to be clear that he was talking only about the person of Jesus, or if he wanted to be clear he was talking only about the message that gives life, he has all the tools in his toolbox to do that. He does that in other writings of his. But he doesn't use them here. And because he doesn't, we actually learn something really crucial. That Jesus is the message. That the word is the word. If we want to say it that way. The capital W word is the word lowercase w the person of Jesus Christ and the message that gives life are inseparable. Another way to think about it. We need both the Messiah and the message. One of those things by itself actually does nothing for us. In 1974, almost 30 years after the end of world war II, a man named Hiro Onoda, a Japanese intelligence officer, finally laid down his gun on an island in the Philippines. He had been hiding out there for nearly three decades, thinking that the war had not yet ended. That's a little bit what it's like to have a Messiah, but no message. Something has been accomplished. Something has been done. There's peace. The war is over. But if you don't know about it, your life is completely unimpacted by it. You keep living as if that wasn't true. Jesus, the Messiah, is the Word, capital W, the Word of life. Life has been bought and paid for. But no one gets to enter into it, no one gets to experience that unless there's a message that, that's given to hear, to respond to, and to believe. Now, on the other hand, a message without a Messiah is utterly empty. To stick with a warfare illustration, it's a little bit like the, the Mission Accomplished banner that President Bush unfurled in 2003 aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln. It was a really great, exciting message. Mission accomplished. We've done it. But it really wasn't true. There was not really substance to it. There was so much left undone. This message can only be the word of life. It can only give life if Jesus really came into the world. If Jesus really lived the perfect life that we could not. If Jesus really died, the substitutionary death in our place. If Jesus not only died in our place, but rose from the dead to give us eternal life, to conquer Satan's sin and death on our behalf. Any message about life, any message that claims to give or impart life is worthless unless those things actually happened. So what is the word of life in 1 John? It's both the message and it's the Messiah. And actually, from from the the lack of complete clarity about the exact meaning here, let's make sure we do gain clarity about this. That the Messiah is the message. That the word is the word. The good news that Christians believe, the good news that Christians are all about is not something else. It's not how Jesus gives us tips and tricks to live a, a better life. It's not how Jesus even gives us eternal rewards In heaven someday, more than anything else, the message that we believe, the message we hang our lives on is that we get Jesus. We get to find our life in him. That he is the eternal reward more than anything else. And so friends, if if you are a Christian, make sure that is the clear center of your message. Make sure that's the clear center of your message. People in our church, people in our world have no clarity about this. So little clarity about this. And if we're honest, part of that is our fault. Part of that's our fault. Because what we emphasize as Christians is often not this. Not the very center of the person and work of Jesus and what he's done. Instead, it's a political position. Or it's our hobby horses. Or even some of the benefits of being a Christian, which there are. Or the implications of the Christian faith, of which there are many. Are you adding to the confusion or are you helping clarify confusion? And just really practically, if you want, this is scary to do, scary for me to do. If you want an honest assessment of that, ask someone that you know, a family member or a friend who's not a Christian, ask them what they understand about Christianity and what Christians believe from your presence in their life. Say, hey, what does my my presence, I'm a Christian, hopefully they know that. What does my presence in your life teach you about what Christians are all about? You might find yourself really encouraged. You might find yourself really discouraged. If you're discouraged, that's okay. I talk about Jesus professionally. I'm discouraged about the answer I hear back from that very often. It's part of our own continued life and growth in this. But that's a practical way you you can ask and see. The word of life is both the Messiah and the message because the Messiah is the message. So if that's what the word of life is, second, second, let's talk about how we know it. How we know it. And John's answer here in this text is twofold. We know the word of life through manifestation and through proclamation. Manifestation and proclamation. John's trying at the very onset of this this letter to answer a really big question, which is how can that which was from the beginning how can that which is eternal and is with the father before time, how can it be seen and heard and touched the way he claims to have been able to see and hear and touch. And the answer is manifestation, manifestation. Verse two, the life was made manifest. And he goes on to say that which was with the father was made manifest to us. We can only know what God reveals. We're limited We're finite as human beings. We're created. He's the creator. We can only know what God reveals. And the most significant thing God has ever revealed is himself. The incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus took on flesh to dwell among us in this earth. It's the most incredible thing that has ever been revealed to the world. That he was able to remaining fully God, take on human flesh and become fully man. That in Jesus, the eternal could be known physically and tangibly. That John and the apostles could even say crazy things like, yeah, the eternal God, the Father who created the world, I've touched him. I've touched him. And if John doesn't include this at the opening of his letter, he may as well just stop writing. He, he might as well just stop. If this letter is about us finding assurance and confidence, if he's writing to say that we may, so that we may know that this, that this is true, we only know because it was made manifest in Jesus. Without the incarnation, we don't know. We don't know. In the first century, it was these early forms of Gnosticism, special knowledge, different kinds of spirituality that turned people away from, from the faith, caused people to leave the church. Instead of accepting what had been made manifest in Jesus, these different groups were inventing their own lies about God, their own heresies. They had these belief systems that had some parallels, some overlap. With Christianity, but then departed from Christianity in really important, fundamental ways. We don't have the exact same groups uh, alive and well in the 21st century, but we do have a lot of their direct descendants. We do have a lot of the same heresies, some of which play up the humanity of Jesus. Yep, Jesus was fully human, he was a man that lived around and w- walked on the earth and, and, and taught morals and about the way to live, but they downplay his divinity. Others of which, in the more spirituality, spiritual kind of realm, new age spirituality kind of realm, they play up Jesus' divinity, but they downplay his humanity. But here's the thing. If the incarnation is true, then all of the other religions and cults and worldviews and spiritualities, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Either God revealed himself in Jesus, either Jesus is fully God and fully man, or he isn't. If he is both of those things, this is, the, this is the, the stumbling block. This is the offensive part of the incarnation. Like it's great if Jesus is fully man and just kind of maybe has a little bit of the influence of the divine in him or, or vice versa. If he is fully God and fully man, you and I now have to do everything he says. We now have to obey a Jewish man that walked on the earth for 33 or so years, 2,000 years ago. We're all beholden to what he told us to do. No one likes that. No one, li- that's offensive. We don't want to hear that. But if he's fully God and fully man, that's the only way to respond. If he is not that, John says, none of this assurance is possible. You won't know eternal life. You won't know the word of life. You might as well just spin a wheel of chance and pick something. and Live your life in light of that. You might as well just take bits and pieces of the stuff you like from other views and and make your own. Only if this is true can you know. And John is saying, it is true. I have heard it and seen it and touched it. The eternal really was made manifest in Jesus and therefore rejoice because you can know life. You may know life. So there's manifestation. And then verse three, there's proclamation, proclamation. It's actually, you know, there's a lot of stuff. This is a densely packed letter. It's a densely packed opening to the letter. The main verb, the main action word in these opening verses is the word proclaim, proclaim, All that John and his fellow apostles have seen and heard, all that's been made manifest in Jesus, he's saying, we proclaim to you. The gospel is a person and a message that must be proclaimed. And John says here that he both testifies to it. That's the language of an eyewitness, someone who has firsthand observational experience of the stuff that they're talking about. And he also says he proclaims it which is the language of an entrusted messenger, someone who has been sent with with news to share. And so someone who both testifies and proclaims is someone who has both experience and a commission. Experience and a commission. And John, like the rest of the apostles, had that in a really unique way. They were eyewitnesses in a way that few people in the history of the world were. A huge part of the definition, actually, of what it means to be an apostle with a capital A was that it was someone who saw with their own eyes the risen Jesus. They got to see the risen Jesus in the flesh, alive. And the apostles were then directly commissioned by Jesus to go and proclaim the good news of his salvation. Fast forward 2,000 years, how do we know life? That's how we know that's how we know. If you're a Christian in this room this morning, it is, you know, praise God for that. It's because John and the other apostles testified and proclaimed. And I want you to even just to think for a moment, where would you be if they hadn't? Where would you be if they had not done that? Where, where would the world be if they had punted on that calling? If they had abdicated what Jesus had sent them out to do? It's sobering to think about. This incredible manifestation from God, the incarnation of Jesus, would be unknown unless it was proclaimed. And in saying that, I don't don't mean in any way to negate any of the the sovereignty of God, any of God's complete control in things. Who knows what God would have done if the apostles punted? Who knows what, what God would have done if the apostles did not carry out this calling? But here's the reality. The manifestation always needs proclamation always in every age in every the manifestation needs proclamation the way the word of life becomes known is when men and women who have both personal experience and a commission refuse to hide behind god's sovereignty and instead like the prophet isaiah say here am i send me send me and if you're a christian i hope you know this already but it's so worth reiterating over and over again if you're a christian you already have both the experience and the commission. You have those things. It's not just something that pastors or leaders in the church or people with a seminary degree have. If you're a Christian, you have all of the experience and the commission you need to be someone who proclaims that life is found in Jesus. You haven't seen, unless you have a crazy story that I've not heard before, you have not seen the risen Jesus with your own eyes, like John did. But you have tasted and seen that God is good. You have been washed. You've been cleansed from your former way of life. You've been cleansed from the things that used to enslave you. You've been delivered from the dominion of darkness. And you've been brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. You have received mercy from God. You have that experience. And you have a commission. Through Jesus, you have become Not only a son or a daughter in God's family, but Jesus himself says, you've become a priest without any seminary degree. Can you imagine? (laughs) Hopefully you can. Yes, you're a priest to God, Jesus says. Peter writes, you're part of a royal priesthood who gets to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into marvelous light. That's both the language of commission and experience right there in 1 Peter. You've not only been commissioned by Jesus to be his disciple, but to help make other disciples, just by nature of being a disciple yourself. So, this letter is written primarily that you may know. In other words, that that we who already look to Jesus, that we who already look to find our life in him, might have assurance and confidence that we have it, that he's given it to us. But when we know, Others will come to know through us. They'll come to know through us. And so if you're here this morning and you're in a place where you're just really wrestling deeply with faith, with doubt, as we do, as all Christians do in different times of their life, my prayer for you is that you would find all of the confidence and assurance that is held out to you by Jesus. But even in this letter, I, I hope that you walk away each week that we gather and we dive into first John and in the discussions you get to have in light of this series, I hope you walk away with deeper confidence and assurance that this is really true. And it does count on your behalf. Some of you really just need that yourself in your life right now. And I hope you find it. Others of you maybe aren't in a season of wrestling so much. You're not burdened and plagued by doubt in this particular moment of your life. Our confidence and assurance is always meant to overflow into proclamation telling people that Jesus came into the world for for sinners like us, imploring people to be reconciled to God. So it's not just that we may know, it certainly is that, but it's also so that others may know through us. And I'd invite you to to consider as you reflect today or this week, is assurance overflowing into proclamation in your life? Do you have confidence and assurance that these things are true? And is it overflowing into proclamation? proclamation. If not, then I would also call you to really lean into this letter and into this series and into the discussions that you get to have in your home and your Bible study groups through manifestation and proclamation. The word of life is held out to you. So ask the Holy spirit to, to deepen your confidence, to give you more assurance so that you might not only believe yourself, but that you might be one who proclaims to others. So that's what the word of life is. That's how we know it. Third, let's talk about why we need it. Why we need it. Why was this word of life made manifest and then proclaimed? John writes that it's for both immediate fellowship and eternal joy. Immediate fellowship and eternal joy. John we read there in verse three, wants his readers to have fellowship, which is a, a deep sense of identity and belonging an enjoyment of relationship. And as he says there, it's fellowship, not only with other Christians, not only among the people of God, but with God himself. He says that our fellowship is with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. Christianity is not transactional. It's relational. There are a couple pictures of salvation in scripture that seem a little bit more transactional, but to be a Christian through and through is not simply to, to check a few boxes of belief statements. Okay, I agree with those things. It's to be in deep relationship, fellowship with God and with his people. Fellowship with God in the broad sense is what it means to experience salvation. To be united with Christ, that's one of the central images for what salvation is in scripture. To be united with Christ, that's relational. That's fellowship. To be adopted into God's family. We talked about that a ton in January. That's relational. That's fellowship. To be reconciled with God. That's relationship. That's fellowship. And then we're meant to experience that same quality of fellowship with with others. So here's the thing. The Bible does not give us, if you're a Christian, the Bible does not give you a category for other Christians that you want nothing to do with. <laughs> it's okay to laugh because we all can probably like, think that's going to be a struggle for us in one way or another. The Bible doesn't give us a category for Christians that we don't want anything to do with. If we have fellowship with God, then we have fellowship with each other. And that's already true positionally already a work that that is done because of what Christ has done. But we're also meant to experience that in real life, not just positional, but experiential. We're meant to be at peace with and in community with other Christians. Now that's not possible at the same depth with everybody. And it's not at all to downplay the complexity of doing this, of pursuing this at times. Most of you know, as I do, that sin wreaks relational havoc. And that's not just for people that that are apart from Christ or outside the church. That's among people that all look to Jesus as their savior. Sin wreaks relational havoc. Relationships get really broken. Get really broken. And so this is not to say that in our relationships with other Christians, we never have any boundaries. We don't have to use wisdom for how we interact with other people. Yes, we do. But if you have come to know the word of life, you actually don't have the right to say things like, hey, you know what? You might be a brother, sister in Christ. I don't want anything to do with you. Stay over there. You actually don't have the right to say that. And so I would invite you to consider, are there any Christians, groups of Christians, individual Christians that you just don't want anything to do with? That you don't want fellowship with? And if so, I would just look at this these words of 1 John as a mirror and see in that, that that is inconsistent with knowing the life that has been secured for you by Jesus. If, for example, if you have more fellowship, or especially if you want more fellowship with people who aren't Christians, but who share your hobbies or share your political views, or share your skin tone, or share your socioeconomic status, if you want more fellowship with them than you do with people that have this fundamental unity through the work of Jesus, I would say to you that you are not seeing things clearly. And I would beg you this morning to not walk away from this place without taking that before the face of God and repenting and saying, God, that is not the way I meant to live my life. That is not the fellowship that you came into this world to secure for me with others and with you. You don't need to know the word of life to live that way in the ways that we just choose our own friends and and ignore brothers and sisters in Christ. You You don't need the manifestation of Jesus and the proclamation of his good news to have fellowship with people who are easy for you. The word of life has come so that natural enemies might have this kind of fellowship because after all enemies is exactly what we were to God apart from his intervening mercy. So we know this life. Why? For fellowship with God and with other Christians, but also then verse four for eternal joy, eternal joy until Jesus Christ comes again. Our joy will always be somewhat incomplete. There'll always be an incomplete quality to our joy until Jesus comes again. Some things will never be the way they're meant to be until he comes but one of the most ordinary and one of the most powerful ways that you can experience more and more of the joy that is offered to you through Jesus is to share it. It's to share it. It's a paradox of God's economy. It's a paradox of the way the kingdom of God works. If we focus intently on trying to to stir up our own joy, we actually become more miserable. That's because when we focus inward, we, we actually start to cut ourselves off from the source of joy. We're meant to look not in but up and find our joy in Jesus. We're meant to look out. And you grow even in your own experience of joy, you move toward complete joy when instead of focusing on yourself, you share the joy that you do have with other people. Share joy is increased joy. Shared joy moves us toward completed joy. So here's an immediately practical application. If the Eagles win the Super Bowl tonight, had to find a way to get it in there somewhere. If the Eagles win the Super Bowl tonight, a lot of people in this room and a lot of people in our greater region are going to be really happy. They're going to celebrate a lot. You're going to see a lot of shared joy, okay? When that, ha- when that happens, take note of it. Take note of it. Watch how sharing joy increases joy. Maybe don't burn things down the way Philadelphia fans will, and that's, that's an interesting application of shared joy. So, it's a limited application. So, and if they lose, please don't imitate anything that they do. Okay, It's a qualifier. But that joy, right? We're talking about a football game. That joy is minuscule in comparison with the joy of knowing that life is held out to you in Jesus. And so watch that. Whoever wins, watch that. And imagine if Christians were to share their joy in the way that a Super Bowl winning team's fans share their joy. Imagine what the world would look like if we even did that sometimes. Imagine. Friends, John has written these words that you may know life, that you may know life, the word of life, the person and work of Jesus Christ and the message of life found in him. It has been manifested. It has been proclaimed to you. You have been invited into immediate fellowship and into eternal joy. And so today and in, in the weeks ahead, as we dive into this series, may you know this life, may you know all of the confidence and assurance that is held out to you as one who has fellowship with God. And then as an overflow of that, may others come to know this life through you. You already have all of the experience and all of the commissioning you need. So through you, may others share our fellowship and may others share our joy. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you have given us the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. You have given us fellowship with yourself, fellowship with each other. You have given us joy. And I pray that as we joyfully receive your good news for ourselves, as we grow in assurance and confidence, that we might also be people who joyfully share it with others. And in all of that, may all of that ever give glory to you by whose grace alone we are what we are. As we now prepare to come to this table, I ask that this moment would be one that deepens assurance and confidence that we feast upon your finished work. And in so doing hold on to take hold of the eternal life, the word of life that you have offered us in yourself. Jesus help us even in these moments to walk out of this room with more confidence and assurance than we came in. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.